The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. If we haven't met, I'm Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really good to see you all this morning. And it's especially good to see you because uh, we've been in some difficult passages the last few weeks, haven't we? And, uh, and today we get to talk about the resurrection. And so I'm super excited about that. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And now I know Easter is two weeks away, um, but 1 Corinthians is so important and also so long that we're going to um, need at least a few weeks in this passage. Now this is the, the most well-known chapter in the Bible on the resurrection, really talking about the resurrection of Jesus, but also our future resurrection as well. And at first glance, this chapter might seem out of place because Paul's been dealing with a laundry list of issues in the book, and then suddenly it's resurrection. But if you remember back in the first part of the book, in chapter 2, Paul says, For I decided to, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so the book starts with crucifixion, but then it ends with resurrection. So it's a fitting conclusion to the book. And even at all the issues that Paul addresses in between, so disunity about leadership, lawsuits between believers, eating food, sacrificed to idols, disorder in their worship services, sexual morality, what does all that have to do with the resurrection? Well, the answer is everything. It has everything to do with the resurrection. So if we can agree on the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus— you would notice that many of our human squabbles would start to disappear. So if if God has the power to raise Jesus from the dead, then he has authority to tell us how we should live out our lives. You know, it doesn't make any sense to say, I believe in the resurrection, but let me live how I want. I mean, the resurrection is a bit of an ultimate trump card, right? And so it impacts all of life, and it should impact our entire lives. Now, in the opening verses of chapter 15, Paul establishes the historical fact of Christ's resurrection. You see, Christianity makes truth claims that are easily disproved if they're not true. Now, some religions are more like a philosophy on how to live life. Or if there is someone that makes a historical claim about someone going out in the woods and having some revelation from God or the gods, as they might say, Well, it's just that person's word versus everyone else's. But when you look at the resurrection of Jesus, if the resurrection was a hoax, it could have easily been shown to be a hoax. So what is the most famous grave that you have visited in your life? So for me, I would say a couple of different ones. Uh, George Washington's grave at Mount Vernon. When I was a kid growing up in that area, we would take a field trip. It was pretty cool like to go on a field trip to Mount Vernon. That was like a day trip for us. And um, I don't know why I didn't think about this, but whenever I was probably in fourth or fifth grade on a field trip to Mount Vernon, and we're seeing the grounds, and it's, just a, it's a beautiful place to visit, and then they take us to the grave. And I don't know why I didn't register. I was like, oh, yeah, there's going to be a grave of George Washington probably in Mount Vernon. And, of course, we're, I just found it fascinating that we're this we're this close to uh, George Washington's um, body. It just it was fascinating to me. And then, then you've got uh, probably the second most famous is Thomas Jefferson's uh, grave in Monticello, also in Virginia. And then when, in my early 30s, um, I went and visited 
C.S. Lewis's grave. Now, that's not why I went to England. But when I was there, we decided to go and, and see this in Oxford. And so, you know, when you think about famous people, when, when famous people die, they get famous graves. So if Jesus did not resurrect, then the question is, where is his grave? Where was the body? As Paul will argue in this chapter, if the resurrection can be disproven, then our entire faith collapses in on itself. So Corinth is a, is a Greek city, and Greeks did not believe in a bodily resurrection for their future. And so when Paul preached in Athens over in Acts chapter 17, this was their response to Paul talking about the resurrection. In Acts 17, 32, they said, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will, hear, we will hear you again about this. So the Greek philosophers, they considered the human body a prison. So why would anybody want to resurrect a body or, or get a new body? The Corinthian believers, however, did believe in the resurrection of Jesus this is why Paul begins his argument with what they already believe to be true. And so Paul's going to answer a basic question in this passage. And the question is, are the dead raised? And so look with me at verse 1 of chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So the first evidence is their own salvation. Now, despite many, Paul's many rebukes in this book, Paul calls these people brothers and sisters in Christ because he considers them family. And that's really what's fueled this letter all throughout, is Paul's love and concern for them is like family. So Paul had spent time with them preaching the gospel. And in the Greek, that word gospel is euangelion, and that means good news. Now, the gospel always has to be preached and shared. There are a lot of people, in our, even in the Christian world, that will say things like, I don't really want to preach the gospel or share the gospel. I just want to live the gospel or show the gospel. Now, good news has to be shared or preached. It can't just be lived out. Now, of course, how we live is important. Of course it is. But it is, a, it, is, it is good news to be shared and preached, not just um, lived out in that way. On the other side of that, good news needs to be received. We call that surrender here, one of our core values here at TBC. And this is more than just mental agreement that something is true, but it's to submit one's life to it. It's to submit to it in such a way that you are changed, your life is transformed because of that reality that you're living in. Somebody can believe Jesus truly resurrected as a historical fact, but still not be a Christian if they haven't truly received it in a personal way, and it's become what they live from. So Paul says, we don't simply embrace this gospel and then move on. I love his, 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 his phrase, we, we're standing in it. We're standing in, the, in this position. We live our lives in it. We don't ever graduate from it. And in verse 2, Paul is not saying that we can lose our salvation, but he is claiming that all of life will be a test 
about whether we truly believe this good news about Jesus. As you and I, as you and I live our lives, we're going to be faced with multiple tests on whether or not we, we truly believe this to be the reality. And of course, there are people that, that claim to believe early on in their life and then later claim they no longer do. I would say that person never had true saving faith in Jesus. You know, one of the great evidences for Christianity is stories of changed lives. I know it's not the normal apologetic or defense of the faith argument that we normally throw down, but one of the best defenses for Christianity is the power of changed lives. And I know you might say, well, well, there's a lot of nice people in other religions, so how does that really work out? And I would say that is true, but we're gonna, we'll talk about the other stuff in just a little bit. But I do think that one of the most powerful things that points to the reality of the resurrection is miraculously transformed lives. And we'll see that here as we walk through this passage. Before experiencing physical resurrection, you and I get to experience spiritual resurrection because God breathes life into us spiritually. I mean, think of all the stories we've, you can imagine in the Corinthian church. Remember that guy in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 committing sexual immorality in the church and everyone seems okay with it? I'm convinced that there are a lot of people that Paul confronted in this, in this church that end up you know, realizing they're walking and living in sin and, and repenting and turning to Jesus. There's a lot of stories of life change in the Corinthian church. I think Paul's pointing to that here. He's saying, look, you, I preach this gospel to you and you received it. And you're still standing in the same gospel. And so I think one of the most powerful ways that we can know this is truth and reality is the power of changed lives. I mean, think of the stories in this room alone and what God has done with many of us in our, in our lives and experiences. Look with me at verse 3. It says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So now Paul's referring, of course, to the Old Testament Scriptures. Of course, the New Testament had not been written yet at this point when Paul's writing this. And uh, so Paul says, not only did you receive it, but there was a time when I received it as well. So the message, the gospel I've been preaching to you all and sharing with you all there was a time when I received it. You know, if anyone's story is, is evidence of the resurrection, then it has to be Paul's conversion, his miraculous conversion. If anyone asks what they need to, be, to believe to become a Christian, there's a great summary here in these few verses. That Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised up again. You see, Christians, as Christians, we need to believe, in the, we need to believe the facts that they're true, but we also need to believe in the theology behind it, so that, that Christ died for your sins. So you don't just believe in just a set of facts that, you know, yeah, Christ came and he, he, he lived a perfect life and he, he died a death and he was buried and he was raised up again. It's not, it's not enough just to say, yeah, I believe in those facts, but you need to believe in the reasons for why those things took place, which is that he died for your sins. He died in your place, on your behalf, and this is what it means to to receive this truth in a real personal way. And when Paul wrote, according to the scriptures, he's referring to the, the, sacrifi the sacrificial system of 
the Old Testament or the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16 or the prophecies over in Isaiah 53. All that, of course, points to his crucifixion. But where do we find hints of the resurrection in the Old Testament? Well, even in uh, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus refers to the experience of Jonah in the belly of the great fish as a parallel to his own coming experience of being in the grave for three days. And then later in this passage, Paul's going to refer to the resurrection of Jesus as being symbolically tied to the Feast of first fruits over in Leviticus chapter 23. Paul's going to refer to Jesus' resurrection as like the first fruits of a great harvest that's going to point eventually to our resurrection as well. And then look with me in verse 5. It says, And that he appeared to Cephas, which is Aramaic for, for Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they. So we preach, and so you believed. And now the third evidence that we see here is, is that Christ is seen by many witnesses. So after Jesus is raised from death, he appears to Peter, then the 12 disciples, and then 500 people all at once. And now Paul is writing this about 20 years after Christ ascended, and he says that many of them are still alive. So he's saying, you can go check it out. You, you can check what I'm saying with what their story, what their eyewitness event was. And this area would have been a rural area, so 500 people gathering would have been a pretty significant event in that time. You know, skeptics will say, well, the disciples, they were just, they were naive, they were gullible, they're first century peasants who would fall for anything. But then we hear about, remember that one disciple? His name was Thomas. He was known for something, known for doubting and not really believing and he didn't really believe that he had seen the risen Christ or that Christ had raised until he saw him in the flesh. And he put his fingers in his nail-scarred hands and put his hand in his side. And that's when Thomas came to truly believe. Others say the disciples orchestrated this grand lie to make people believe that Jesus resurrected. But what would they have to gain by doing that? I mean, they gained nothing of worldly consequence. They gain nothing but suffering and death as a result of them sticking with this idea that Jesus truly resurrected from the grave. I think one of the most intriguing people listed in this passage is this person, James. This is the, the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus had, had two or three brothers that we know wrote Scripture, James and Jude. And what's fascinating is that neither of them believe that Jesus was the Messiah until much later. So they're growing up with him. They're seeing him. They, they just see him as their brother. But don't realize his special calling until, until much, much later. And his entire ministry takes place. So John chapter 7, verse 5 says, 
for not even his brothers believed in him. So do you know why we hear so little about Jesus and Jesus' family in the Gospels? Well, they thought he was crazy. His whole family thought he was out of his mind. And so that's why you don't hear about, you know, his family tagging along with the disciples because they didn't even believe that he was who he said he, that he was. And if Jesus' brother, James, did not believe that he was the Messiah for his entire ministry, what would cause his brother James to go from unbelief to belief? What would cause someone who grew up with him and saw him for 30 plus years and watched from a distance but still didn't believe? What would, what would cause that person to finally believe? You know, I can only think of one thing, and it's a resurrection. What did James do after he saw the risen Christ? Well, he went on to write part of the Bible. He became a leader in the church of Jerusalem. Paul refers to him as a pillar in the faith. And James lived up to that name because in AD 62, he was captured by Jewish religious leaders and he was taken up to the top of the temple and he was thrown off and somehow he didn't die. Apparently, he was a fairly stubborn person to try to kill. And so the religious leaders, they picked up stones and, and clubs, and they, they beat James to death. James went from, he went from doubter to believer to leader to martyr. Now, why would, why would James do that for a lie? Especially someone who was already skeptical. What reason would he have to flip And lastly, Paul cites himself as the witness. So in this great courtroom drama, Paul says, I'm going to bring myself to you as a key witness before Paul's conversion. Of course, his name was Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And Saul persecuted Christians all over the known world. And he had Christians killed. He tried to destroy the church. But one day, Paul is on that road to Damascus. And he's looking to persecute more Christians. And the risen Jesus shows up in a vision. And says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And remember, Paul is struck with blindness. And later on, he's healed from that. And Paul is miraculously transformed. And so the the scales, as they fall off his physical eyes, it's a spiritual metaphor that that you've been walking in blindness your whole life. And now I'm going to give you sight so you can see me for who I am. I'm the risen Christ. And so Paul is transform miraculously. And then Paul admits here in chapter 15, he says, I don't deserve to be an apostle. It's really only by God's grace and by the grace of God, I am what I am. I love that statement. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Because those same words can be said of you and me. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I think we see an important idea here that God's grace should never lead to passivity. I think very often you and I, we think of God's grace and we, we forget that we're also called to live on mission. And it's God's grace that should fuel the mission. That's what Paul allowed God's, God's grace, God, he allowed God's grace to fuel his mission that God had called him on. Dallas Willard says it like this, that grace is not opposed to effort, but is opposed to earning. So because of God's grace, we, don't, we get nervous when we start talking about works 
in the same sentence with grace because they seem to conflict. But understand, no, it's the motive. Of course, we don't, we don't do, do good works to earn favor with God, so it's the motive. But when God's grace has changed you, there is some work to be done now. And so we, we allow his, his grace to never let us rest in passivity, but to, but to push us towards the mission he's called us towards. So Paul is doing that in his own life, his own ministry, as he shared the gospel all over that part of the world. We, we need to see God's grace equally operating in us as well. We, think of, we always think of Paul being this like extreme case, right? Well, well Paul's this extreme conversion, but apart from Christ, everyone's an extreme case. Apart from Christ, everyone is just as lost as the next person. The same grace required to save Paul is the same grace required to save you and I. It's no different. There's not some other reservoir of grace that God used for Paul versus using when he, when he, when he shows, us, shows grace to you and I. So from that day... Paul goes from being a murderer of Christians to becoming a pastor of Christians. And instead of causing their funerals, he preaches their funerals. He became like those whom he persecuted. So why would Paul do that for a lie? Paul had nothing to gain. He had nothing earthly to gain and everything to lose. And he really he lost his life eventually. So I want to summarize what we've heard so far. The following is where Skeptical and conservative scholars all find common ground. They can agree on these things. This is a, called the Minimal Facts Argument by Gary Habermas. And this is what conservatives and quote-unquote liberal scholars will say they agree on. Jesus truly did come and, and live, and he died by crucifixion. The early followers believed, at least believed they saw the risen Christ, and they also believed to the point of death. Skeptics like James and Paul believed they saw the risen Christ. And then Jesus' death and resurrection was proclaimed thereafter all throughout the world. So if someone doesn't believe in the res- resurrection, then they have a lot of explaining to do about how the church got its start. Because it really takes, I think, more faith to believe that the church started in some other way than what we, we believe how it did start. Habermas even says that even scholars who are not Christians agree with these minimal facts. And listen, I'm not pretending that this proves the resurrection, but I think it does show that Christianity is unique. Gary Habermas goes on to say, there was something different about Jesus' disciples. Christianity is the only major world religion whose early disciples were willing to die for the belief that their religion's founder had been resurrected. Moreover, his resurrection was the very center of their message. No event of this nature is found anywhere in the other major religions, and certainly not when one asks for good evidence that it happened. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is not just some historical claim, or just some religious claim, rather but it's a historical claim. There, listen, there is no religion that sticks out its neck to historical analysis like Christianity. There is no other religion that makes claims that are so easily disproven if they're not true. 
And now to be fair, you might say, well, there, there are many people who have died for religious causes or purposes that they believe to be true, and that, that is true. But they weren't willing to die for something that they think is false. They thought it to be true. And so if it were a lie, the disciples would have to be part of the hoax, part of the lie. And I think that's the, it's an important difference. Now to be clear, the Corinthian believers were not struggling to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. They were struggling to believe in their own future resurrection. So Paul proceeds with an if-then argument that goes like this. If there's no resurrection for us, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and we're still in our sins. Then he concludes with uh, verse 19, where it says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if there's no, no future hope of resurrection, then the question is, what are we doing here? I mean, you guys got up fairly early this morning. I mean, not as early as the 9 o'clock service. But you got up and came to church, and the question is, if, if Christ isn't truly raised, then what are we doing in the church? We could be a lot more productive by not being here if this isn't true. If following Jesus only makes you a little happier, a little more prosperous in this life, then the joke is on us. We're to be pitied. The world should feel sorry for us if that's the case. You know, around this time of year, we see lots of TV specials that are questioning the resurrection of Jesus. And, of course, I don't agree with their, their conclusions. But we can agree on this one thing, that they're attacking the right thing. If there's no resurrection, then there's no Christian faith. And that's not just what the critics say. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that. And so there is no religion that I think sticks its neck out like Christianity does to the criticism of historical analysis. And so we're going to summarize some of this chapter going forward because I don't want to keep you guys here till Monday morning. It's kind of a long chapter. Um, but I want to look at what are the consequences of the resurrection of Jesus. And in uh, verses 20 to 28, we see these consequences for the future. And the first is believer's resurrection, our, our future resurrection. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is not going to be some isolated event. Jesus is, the, is like the first fruits of, of all the future believers getting resurrected. So um, Paul then describes two groups, those who have died in Christ and those who are alive at a second coming. And the scriptures seem to teach that when a believer dies, their spirit enters the presence of Christ, but there is still this future bodily resurrection for that person. And then Paul un unpacks some really deep theology in the rest of these verses here, saying that when Adam sinned, all humanity sinned, and therefore we all inherit death because of, we all fall in Adam. But Jesus is the new Adam, and in Christ, we all inherit new life, and we also get resurrection. We get this resurrected body in the end. And then secondly, 
a future consequence is enemies' subjection. That means all of God's enemies get defeated. That means human, demonic, and lastly, even death itself. You know, in this life, we spend, we spend our time, we spend our money delaying death, denying death, trying to defeat death. But there's going to be a day when there will be no more aging and no more illness, no more funerals. The last funeral will be for death itself. Death and all that goes with it will be put six feet under. We get to look forward to that day. This is why Paul, later in the chapter, quotes Isaiah 25. And in, and in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul belts out Isaiah 25 and he says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Paul is trash-talking death. One day, believers are going to dance on the grave of death. You know, even the, the agnostic or the most committed atheist knows that deep down, death is not how it's supposed to be. No matter what someone's belief system is, they know just inherently that this, there's, there's things wrong with this world. That death is not how things should be. I think everyone realizes that. And we can spend our energy trying to defeat it ourselves. We can live under this hopeful reality that death's day of reckoning is coming. And so there is this future implication for the resurrection of Jesus. But there's also some present implications as well. We see those in verse 29 to 34. Now before we say these points, verse uh, 29 refers to the strange practice in Corinth where people are getting baptized on behalf of their relatives who had died unbaptized. Some believe there was possibly an epidemic in Corinth killing many people. I mean, imagine that. Um, but that was happening possibly back in Corinth, and people are dying quickly and suddenly, and so people are trying to get baptized on behalf of their dead relatives. And so Paul's not approving that practice, but he is using their own logic against them by saying, listen, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then why are you getting baptized for your dead relatives? What's your motive by doing that? And then secondly, the act, the act of baptism itself is a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. I think Paul's making this point that, you know, if you don't believe in a future resurrection, then that's kind of what baptism points towards, the the future resurrection of the believer. So, I want you to see a couple of points here under this idea of there's consequences in the present. And the first is this, resurrection also fuels our witness. Paul says, if there's no resurrection, then why am I risking my life to share the gospel? Over in 2 Corinthians, Paul lists off all the dangers that he's faced, but he presses on because he believed in a resurrection. He believed in a future resurrection. And he says, listen, if there's no resurrection, well, then let us, let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. That was one of their bumper stickers back then. And Paul says, if there's no resurrection, then we should just follow the the philosophical understanding of your people and just live life. Just party, have fun. If there's no resurrection. And so Paul is saying, listen, the resurrection is what's fueling my witness 
in, in sharing the gospel with the known world. And so for you and I, there should be this connection with the resurrection and even our intent to walk across the street and get to know our neighbor and get to know a teacher at school or a fellow classmate or someone on your team. What should be, be behind all that is this idea there's going to be a future resurrection one day. And I would love that person to know Jesus. And so resurrection should fuel our witness. And in a real sense, it should fuel our local and our global witness. And then lastly, resurrection fuels our holiness. And by that, I don't, I don't mean our positional holiness. Because that's secure in Christ. That's given to us by God. But I'm talking more about how we live our life. So the Greeks saw the physical world, including the body, as inherently evil. And this is why they just could not understand why anybody would want a new body. It'd be like going back into prison for them. But if we believe that matter doesn't matter, then it leads to all kinds of self-indulgence. And this is why so many Corinthians believe that, you know, I can be a Christian and live however I want sexually or get drunk off communion wine or feed my ego concerning spiritual gifts. And so this is why we, we can't divorce body from spirit. We can't make the same mistake that they made back in their culture. You know, it's really hard, I think, for us to see how the resurrection impacts us in the here and now sometimes. And so I want to read to you a letter. This is written by a pastor and writer named uh, Tim Challies. He's from Canada. Don't hold that against him. But he is a, is a great writer, and, and he had a son that was about 20 years old last year. His son passed away just suddenly. They were playing ball with some friends, and his son just collapsed and passed away suddenly. His son was 20 years old. His son was headed to seminary at some point to be a pastor like his dad. And I think this past month was going to be his son's 21st birthday. And so Tim wrote his son a letter and then put it on his blog. I just want to read this letter to you. He writes, Happy birthday, my boy. You're 21 today. Or you would be. Do you celebrate birthdays in heaven? Do you even mark days, months, and years? I confess, I have only just begun to realize how little I know about the place you've gone to be. I've got many questions, but few answers. And then again, I could only get credible answers through the Bible, and it seems to be far less concerned with describing lives in heaven than, than directing lives on earth. It's better that way, I'm sure. I suppose I'll have to wait and get my answers when I arrive. Speaking of which, I don't really know what it looks like to arrive in heaven. I sure hope, though, that you'll be right there when my time comes. I miss you so much. I miss your voice and smile and laugh. I miss your friendship and conversation and counsel. I miss your wisdom and patience and godliness. I miss being a father to a son. Being your dad was truly one of the highest honors I could ever imagine, and outliving you is one of the deepest sorrows. I'm so happy that you're there, of course, but so sad that you're not here. There's a void in my life now. I do some silly things now, things that would probably make you laugh or maybe just make you roll your eyes. I sometimes brew a cup of coffee for you before I visit the cemetery on a Sunday afternoon. 
It's absurd, I know, but it reminds me of the hundreds of times I made your coffee before you headed off to work or school. We bonded over coffee, over different flavors, different roasts, different methods of brewing. So I sometimes take you a cup and I leave it there. It's dumb, I guess, but who's to judge? And really, one of the hardest parts of my loss is that all of my feelings of love remain, but there's no way to express them. For 20 years, there was always something I could give you, something I could do for you, some way I could spoil you, but now you are beyond all doing, beyond all need, beyond all expressions of love, and it's hard for a dad. You know, I asked granddad to make a glass case for your Bible, the one I gave you when you decided to go to seminary. I'm going to lay it open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and keep it near me always. Then whenever I need to... Whenever I need to, I'll be able to look over and read the great promise that keeps me going. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. There is such hope there, such promise, such joy to look forward to. We will be alive together again. You'd be so proud of mom. Even after 22 years of marriage, I wouldn't have been able to predict how she would respond to such heartbreak. But she's done it with strength, with grace, with godliness. I think of all of us, she may have endured the hardest loss, for her heart is the most compassionate and was most knit to yours. Who can deny that the two of you shared a special bond? But she is holding fast to truth, preaching it to herself, and ministering it to the rest of us. But life has to carry on, doesn't it? What choice do I have but to shoulder this burden, to carry this cross, to press on toward heaven, to press on toward you? God has used your death to help pry my fingers off this world, to make me long for heaven in a whole new way. But he's also used it to give me new directions for life, to make me, wanna, to make me want to make the most of my time on earth, my longing for heaven is now inseparable from my longing to see you, and I can barely wait. Nick, I miss you so much. It has been 203 days since I hugged you. Goodbye, 124 days since I spoke with you, 122 days since you went to heaven, and it all feels so long but also so short. And I expect the same will be true of the time that elapses between today and the day we're back together the sage says that life is a vapor, a breath, a puff, a whisper, and I'm more mindful of that than ever, that each day is precious, each day is a gift to be used for the good of others and the glory of God. So I prayerfully discern each day's duty, then carry it out as best I can. Then when night comes, I fall asleep thinking, when I wake up, I'll be one day closer to Nick. And if I don't wake up, I'll finally be with Nick. And to be honest, I'm okay either way. I'll see you soon. Love, Dad. You know, it's the resurrection that makes a letter like that possible. It doesn't erase grief, but we grieve as people that have hope. You see, every human is confronted with this question. What do you believe about the resurrection of Jesus? Do you believe it or, or not? The resurrection is not just a religious claim, but it's a historical claim. And if Jesus was raised from the dead, that means that he has authority over 
life and death. It means that he has authority to confront sin, to judge sin. But it also means that he has the authority to forgive sin and to show grace and to show mercy and kindness. And that's what he offers us. That's what he offers you. Romans 10 verse 9 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This morning, I want to invite you to respond. Just right there where you sit, just be honest before God. If you're someone that doesn't yet consider yourself a Christ follower, then today might be your day of salvation where you recognize your need for a Savior. And so as we, I'm going to pray, and as we sing, if that's where you're at, and you want to cry out to Him and surrender and give your life to Him and surrender to Him, and let him change your life in the way that he's changed so many people's lives in this room and also the life of people like James and Paul all throughout history. I'm going to invite you to surrender your life to him this morning. And so as we sing, just pray to him and tell him that you want him to change your life. You want to surrender your life to him and truly receive this gospel that we're talking about. Not just believe it in the facts, but truly receiving it for yourself in a personal way. Let's go ahead and stand. I'm going to pray for you. God, we thank you that you're a God who gives us hope. God, we can see so many things in this life that we want hope. We desire hope. And we were created that way. You made us that way. But we also thank you that you gave us something that's tangible and real and true to put hope in. Hope's not just some idea. But through your resurrection, you've given us something in history to hang on to to say, yes, one day we will be resurrected just like you were. God, I pray that if anyone here does not yet consider themselves a follower of you, I pray that they would put their faith and trust in that this morning. And truly receive it for themselves and surrender and submit to you this morning, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.